Baseball. Hi, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst for Sports Info Solutions. Thanks to those of you who have tuned in already, and welcome to new listeners. We're here to both inform and entertain. Baseball analytics are cool, interesting, and fun. So let's have some cool, interesting fun with them. Our company develops metrics and provides them to MLB teams, media, and fantasy baseball outlets. We'll give you a peek into our world and talk to important people around the industry about analytics storylines, and we'll share some of our stats and research. On today's show, we'll be asking the question, what does Moneyball look like in 2019? To three writers, Susan Slusser, who covers the A's, Mark Topkin, who covers the Rays, and Dan Hayes, who covers the Twins. My colleague Andrew Kine and I will look at some leaderboards in recent work, and we'll have the ridiculous numbers of the day in the form of trivia so that you can play along. We'll start the show with our opening monologue, which we'll call... Batter up! When we talk about the best defensive center fielders in baseball, who do we talk about? We usually start with Kevin Kiermeyer and Byron Buxton, and we come over to Lorenzo Cain and Ender Enciarte. But perhaps we should consider moving Jake Marisnik of the Astros up the list. Marisnik has seven defensive runs saved this season, which isn't surprising given how well he's fared throughout his career. His runs saved total in the outfield are seven, 15, 13, 18, 2, and 11 heading into 2019. Last season, Marisnik specialized in getting to the deep ball, which included two home run robberies. However, this year, Marisnik hasn't been making jumping catches. Instead, his success is based on getting to the shallow fly ball with a little extra effort. He has the most diving catches among all center fielders with six, and he leads those at the position in our stat, good fielding plays per 100 innings. Adam Moore and Andrew Benintendi know that well. He got Moore twice with Webb Jim catches in the same series, Benintendi twice in the same game. What's also impressive about Marisnik is that his ratio of good plays to misplays and errors is outstanding, 10 to 4. He avoids mistakes. This is a tease to an article I've written for The Athletic on the best defensive outfields in baseball. Check it out if you can, and check out Marisnik. Prepare to be impressed. All right, so here's what we're doing on today's show. We're going to talk to three different baseball writers. We're going to play the interviews consecutively. Susan Slusser, Mark Topkin, and Dan Hayes. They're going to uh, tell us about the ways that their teams are approaching Moneyball in 2019. I think it'll pick up some uh, interesting insights and gain uh, some access and discovery into just how these teams work. That was kind of the goal of of what we were trying to do here. Uh, When we come back after the three interviews, Andrew Kine and I will have a discussion uh, about a number of different topics, but uh, hopefully you'll get... uh, you'll get what we're looking for you to get out of uh, this Moneyball 2019 discussion. Enjoy it. Susan Slusser has covered the athletics for the San Francisco Chronicle since 1999. She's a former Baseball Writers Association of America president and the co-author of the book, If These Walls Could Talk, Stories from the Oakland A's. Susan, if these walls could talk about what Moneyball looks like for this team, what would they say? I, you know, it changes from, from sort of year to year and market to market. Uh, I think the, the last year, one of the things the A's did really well was lived on the margins with transactions, small transactions and trying to, you know, manipulate the roster, not in a bad way, in a good way, you know, try to get the hot hand up when possible from AAA and move out anybody that was underperforming. And they did that really, really well um, when it comes to things like drafts and, and maybe under the radar Minor league signings, what they seem to be going for is athleticism. We saw that most 
obviously in last year's draft with Kyler Murray didn't work out. But, um, you know, Billy Bean said a couple of years ago when they were finishing in last place for the third year in a row, he said they have to um, take big risks, high reward, big risks. And that's what they saw that as. And, you know, that that makes sense. But I'm going to say athleticism and then just trying to uh, manipulate the roster as best they can in any tiny little way. Where did the uh, where did the A's find their undervalued pitching? Well, it's getting harder and harder. Uh, you know, last year I think they actually lucked out. Luck, luck was a, a little bit of a component for them. I don't, I don't know how you can get it, and I don't know how you quantify it. But uh, you know, the way things worked out, especially with with someone like Edwin Jackson, uh, you know, what they got out of Trevor Cahill at times, Brett Anderson. They're not quite doing that, although they they might be a little bit this year. They they went back a little bit to the same well with DFAing. Um, or, or non-tendering Mike Fires and then re-signing him, bringing back Brett Anderson again. They almost brought back Edwin Jackson, had him on a minor league deal before letting him go. Uh, so I think that, that that's kind of what we're seeing. And then, of course, last year, the trade deadline, what the A's did was try to trade for bullpen pieces, didn't have to give up quite as much in terms of prospects, uh, and you know use the bullpen uh, as really a major augmentation to the rotation. They'd like to do that this year. That that is really uh, where the A's have stumbled so far this season is the bullpen is not what it was. Uh, and, and I think that that if they feel like they are potentially contenders this year, that's really where I think we would see them try to make some moves um, between now and, and the end of July. It's a prerequisite, essentially, if you can work for the A's, that you have to have some uh, analytic buy-in, I would think. Uh, what is their analytics department like now and how does it interact with the team? Uh, you know what? It's it's smaller than some teams, some of the big analytics teams. Um, but you know, it's the A's. They're never going to be uh, the biggest or spend the most. Uh, very young um, a, within you know most of you know kind of their their stats analysts. Uh, you know all all of those people, but really, really very bright, very diverse. And uh, this is a you know it's the Moneyball team. Everyone in the organization understands how it works. Um, analytics are pl- applied now throughout the system. Uh, they are use, using data um, for pretty much everything, but especially when it comes to pitching in the minor leagues, um, you know, formulating uh, the repertoire for various different starters, uh, you know, using all the information from TrackMan, Rapsodo, uh, to try to refine things, uh, they are going to take any bit of analytics, including their own proprietary systems, and apply them wherever needed. And we see that top to bottom. Two last questions for Susan Slusser. Uh, the A's are 33 and 34 as of this taping. Uh, is there a stat or stat that most epitomizes the characteristics of this team? Boy, you know what? They have been so streaky, it's almost hard to pin into anything down. Uh, recently, I think the fact that the bullpen has a five ERA over the last 22 games, that's a very, very sort of broad, uh, not the, not the deepest analytic kind of, uh, stat, but I think it tells you that that's where they're stumbling. Their record in close games is not good. Those were the kind of games that they were winning last year. Their record against teams under 500 is not good. Those were the team, the games that they were winning last year. Uh, those, those are the areas they really need to shore things up, uh, winning close games, beating the teams, you know, they quote unquote should, uh, down teams and, and they need more out of the bullpen. They need Lou Trevino and Blake Trinan to be, uh, maybe not what they were last year. Cause that's the last asking a lot, especially in the case of Trinan, but they certainly need them to be better. Sounds like that stuff's hard to predict. Last uh, question. <laughs> 
defense. Uh, we have a great appreciation for the A's defense with Matt Olson at, at first, Matt Chapman at third, Marcus Simeon's come a long way uh, at shortstop. Uh, what sort of value do the A's place on defense, both from a new school and an old school perspective? Well, that is a, you know what, I neglected to mention that when you talked about kind of the more recent money ball things that they, that they have done. I think they really have uh, looked at the draft and acquisitions with an eye toward defense. Um, and in some cases, they really just uh, almost lucked out. Luck is kind of a hard thing to say in the case of somebody like Marcus Simeon, who completely revamped his game under the tutelage of Ron Washington. He, you know, the A's acquire him in the Justin Marge deal with the White Sox, and he came in and was simply dreadful defensively. They brought in Ron Washington six weeks later, and you know, it took a year or two. Uh, but now he is one of the best all-around shortstops in the game. So it's a combination of athleticism, which is one reason that they acquired Simeon in the first place, but also making sure that they're drafting guys uh, they believe will be top-flight defenders, such as Chapman and Olsen, um, acquiring Ramon Laureano from the Astros before last season. Uh, it's uh, it's definitely an, an area of, of uh, concerted effort. I think there's maybe more that they could do. Certainly. Um, but, you know, also converting Chris Davis to a full-time DH didn't hurt in that respect, too. Yep. Susan, thanks for taking the time to join us. My pleasure, Mark. Anytime. All right. So the biggest thing I took from Susan's comments was the challenge of predicting bullpen performance year to year, that and bargain hunting. She mentioned finding talent on the margins, which kind of goes back to what Moneyball was all about and pursuing guys like uh, the Greek god of walks, Kevin Euclid or Jeremy Brown, for those of you that uh, read the book or saw the movie or became familiar with the story. It's a little harder to do this, though, when every team is working off similar sets of information. One team that's good at finding talent on the margins is the Rays, and we're joined by Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times next. Mark Topkin has covered baseball for the Tampa Bay Times for more than 30 years and covered the Rays since their inception in 1998. You've seen this team try a lot of different things. What's the current Moneyball approach that they're taking? Well, I think what stands out the most, Mark, is their use of the opener, which they implemented, you know, a little over a year ago, uh, toward the end of May in 2018, and how they found a way to basically maximize the pitchers on their staff. They had some young starters; they they weren't quite ready to just throw out there uh, as fourth or fifth guys at the big league level, and they felt like they had a lot of good arms in the bullpen, so they you know, kind of implemented something they've been kicking around. Uh, actually, the owner, Stu Sternberg, told me that they've been kicking it around since they started buying into the team, which was 15 years or so ago, and kind of one of those what-if conversations that he and his buddies had. And his buddies turned out to be Matt Silverman and Andrew Friedman, who went on to run the team for him. And that's probably the most obvious one. I mean, they still obviously are one of the teams that does a lot of shifting. And, and this year, we've seen them take that to a new level with more of the former outfield shift. Uh, and, and then an overshift in the infield is part of that roster maximization, of course, trying to get, you know, those 25 guys to play like 27 or 28 platooning, shuttling guys from AAA back and forth. So all, all a bunch of different tactics and techniques that, you know, other teams have used as well, but you know, some that the Rays have evolved over the time with. And I think, you know, like I said, what stands out the most is the use of the opener. And do the Rays people feel that, that these different things that they're trying are working? I presume the proof is in the performance. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the shifting, you know, any given day, any given snapshot, as you well know, it can look like the greatest idea or the worst idea at any time, depending on where the ball rolls through. And, you know, it's going to cost teams games, but I think they overall feel the net is good. But they're they're definitely strong advocates of what they've done with the opener system. And, you know, I think they've been, you know, somewhat intrigued and somewhat amused. And I use both those phrases kind of equally as to see other teams do it and, and how they try to figure it out. And, 
you know, some emulating the way the Rays have done it, some coming up with their own uh, ways and, and, you know, uh, best practices. So I think they feel pretty good about it. I mean, the one thing I will say about the Rays is they're not afraid to try anything. But they're also not afraid to shift off it if it doesn't work. The Tampa Bay Rays uh, battling the Yankees for first place in the uh, AL East. What have the Rays done in terms of player acquisition strategy that's a little bit different? Well, yeah, I think it starts just with the overarching premise of trying to find value where the teams don't see it. And, you know, whether that is picking up a guy like Yandy Diaz that, you know, their internal numbers showed hit the ball really hard. And why couldn't he hit more home runs or hitting the ball that hard? And, and I don't think they made any major changes. I mean, they, you know, it wasn't like they, you know, put fences in front of him and told him to hit him over that. It wasn't like, you know, they made a massive change to his swing. They basically just, you know, convinced him, you hit the ball really hard, just, you know, elevate it a little bit, get out in front of it a little bit more, and you'll see it go. You know, obviously, young players uh, that they feel that other teams have given up upon or weren't as high on, that they still had very strong reports on. I mean, Tyler Glass now and Austin Meadows are prime examples of that in the Chris Archer trade from last July. I mean, if Glass now hadn't gotten hurt, I think those probably would be their two all-stars this year. So that would speak to the pro scouting they do is, is very extensive. They do a little differently than some other teams. They have guys concentrate on areas rather than organizations, which allows them to run other people up there for different looks. Uh, they do a really good job with that. And, you know, I think they're, you know, getting a fairly well-deserved reputation of buyer beware when teams trade with them because they seem to, you know, maybe not win all the trades, but they come out with the guys that, you know, do well for them. And some of the veterans go on that they trade off and do well and some don't. But I think the acquisition a level of players and what they look for and basically undervalued, underappreciated, uh, find different roles for them, use them in the right roles. You know, a guy like Emilio Pagan, who's come over from Oakland this year, you know, they have found uh, whatever, whatever niche it is for him and whatever pitch maximization uh, that, you know, they work with him on. They do that with a lot of their pitchers, you know, try this, try that, try that. This is what our data shows. And they don't force it on them and some adapt and some don't, but I think their success rate is pretty good. What's the level of interaction like between the analytics department and the uh, on-field staff? Well, I think you can you can uh, sum that up pretty easily in their appointment this offseason of Jonathan Ehrlichman, who had been their director of analytics, to an on-field, uh, in-uniform coaching position as the process and analytics coach. You, know, you couldn't have a more uh, obvious, direct merger of those two philosophies. And I know some organizations struggle with it. And it, it's you know, the, the, the nerd herd over here and the on-field guys over here and the old school and the new school. And some teams actually have to hire guys to run you know, interference between the two departments. That's not a problem here. It's not an issue here. I think the Rays you know, do deserve credit for being way out front on that years ago of finding a way that was something Andrew Friedman did when he was in charge here was he had a very good uh, style of being a guy of being a very personable uh, boss who was in the clubhouse and you know would pat you know pat players on the backs and you know shoot the breeze with them and you know just kind of create that you know all together approach instead of an us versus them as you see in some organizations and and like I said Ehrlichman it kept a low profile I mean I'm not sure I can tell you what he does and I've been around him almost every day since mid-February but I know he's really busy all the time and I do think that that uh, was done you know on purpose to bring that level of sophisticated data to the field uh, in a more direct way and and obviously they've got a staff of, of you know guys and women that do all this like most teams do and it's growing and they don't tell you everybody who's on the staff even what they all do but you know, I think the Rays have found a way to, to funnel all that information. This goes back to when Joe Madden and Friedman were here, like I said, funnel all that information, but present it in a way where the players see it as something that will help them, not 
oh, geez, something they have to sort through and look at and dread getting the information on. It seems like they're very sophisticated in terms of positioning too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have got basically like a four, I think it's four different versions of their infield shift. And, you know, they kind of, you'll see them look over to the dugout and whether it's Rodney Linares or Matt Cotraro, the bench coach, giving them, you know, kind of an indication of where to go. But like I said, they're willing to experiment with that too. I mean, and, you know, the, the swimming outfield, when they first started doing that in spring training, you thought, okay, that's what you do against Justin Smoke. And that's what you do against, you know, Judge and Stanton when they're back. But they've done it against a whole bunch of hitters that you would not put in that category of, you know, the fearful hitters. I mean, Goodrum from Detroit the other day to start the game, they're in a four man outfield hmm. and you're like, what are they doing? But they're, you know, they kind of make it an agnostic decision. This is a hitter who hits a high percentage of his balls in the outfield. hits a high percentage of fly balls. Let's put our extra guy out there, not go by the name or the reputation or even who he is or how hard he's going to hit it. It's, this is what the data shows us. Let's react to it. All right. Lastly, we're a defense company. And as a result, we have a common bond with uh, race people in our appreciation of Kevin uh, Kiermeyer. But well, you back to differ with us on something recently <laughs> in rating outfield arms. We didn't put Kevin Kiermeyer in the top 10. How could we not do that? Tell us how his arm has been undervalued. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you guys could do that. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's so many data points now and you guys do a great job, obviously, in, in you know, putting them in, in perspective and context for, for those of us that don't have the sophistication or, or the, or the yeah, you know, access to all the information. But, you know, it, it, I think, it, you know, I'm going to go, it's not as old school as you can here and just go with the eye test. But Kevin Kiermeyer's arm between the speed he has, the ground he covers, the adjustments he's made to get rid of the ball quicker and the arm strength he has. I mean, pitcher quality arm strength, you know, I think he's been clocked at 100 miles an hour a couple times already. It, it's a weapon. And you see it when you see runners being held where you, you know, as the ball plays unfolding, you think, hmm, this might be a 50-50 shot here. And you just see the, the whole sign going up right away. I mean, sure, could his accuracy improve? But I think the arm strength, the quickness in which he's learned to deliver the ball and the speed, which allows him to cover so much ground and thus be in position to make better throws because he's not, you know, lunging or, or leaping for balls sometimes that he's able to get set under and get set up on really makes a difference and makes that arm as impactful as many in the game. <laughs> if we could have a do-over, we might uh, change things with him and with Cody Ballinger, too. <laughs> All right, Mark. Yeah, I mean, for... there's a couple, too, no doubt. Yep, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll talk to you down the road. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Mark. We actually saw Mark at Yankee Stadium a couple of weeks ago. He got on us about Kiermaier, but Mark knows his team inside and out. I feel like that's an organization where everyone is in step with each other from top to bottom, owner down to the manager and the coaching staff. You heard him talk about the relationship that Stuart Sternberg has uh, with the president of the team, and that filters right on down, and that's how they're able to be so effective. One team that's a little late in coming on to Moneyball was the Twins, but they've crafted a strategy that puts them among the top teams in baseball. You're out. Dan Hayes covers the Twins for The Athletic. He's previously covered the Padres and the White Sox as we continue our discussion of Moneyball 2019. And I guess the first question, Dan, would just be, what is the Twins' overarching Moneyball strategy this year? Definitely when you're dealing with the budget that they have and, and some of the constraints they have that other teams don't, they, they're looking for those ways. And, and I think they've done a really good job. Uh, player development has been a pretty heavy focus you know, this is the third year of this front office, and you saw it this year that they were sort of looking in other directions to to find coaches for their minor leagues. They went a lot of private sector. They also went college coaches. I think they have about five or six college coaches. Wes Johnson actually made the major league roster straight from uh, SEC last year, and 
and he's their pitching coach. And, you know, so they, they've, they've looked in that sector a lot for ways to kind of find new ideas, but also find them, you know, the top guys that, that the other areas of the industry maybe haven't touched yet. And obviously uh, extended to the, to the, the roster too, just in their kind of the way they've uh, accumulated uh, power and, and gone after some, you know, it's, it's plentiful these days. And, and, they kind of looked at it and they saw that they could do that and fill some of their roster holes and, and really uh, do it in an affordable way and, and not have to extend with deep contracts and uh, loaded their lineup with a lot of power. And I, I think those two are kind of their, their standout uh, ways that they've, they've looked for, you know, some areas that the industry is overlooking and, and that they could build up and take advantage of. What about on the mound? How could they have predicted that someone like uh, Martin Perez could be this good and that Odorizzi would have improved as much as he has? I, I don't know that Odorizzi, that they could have uh, predicted this just because, you know, a lot of his improvement came based off of him feeling healthy last year. and He had done some core strengthening before the season. He had, had some lower back issues in, in Tampa and was really not himself for a year or so going into the twins. And, and last year for him was much more about proving it to himself that he could withstand the whole season. And, and he did. And I think that that has really kind of allowed him to, you know, in the off season, he went to the Florida baseball ranch and, and worked heavily on mechanics. And, and because he did that, he was able to gain a lot back. I mean, you know, Wes Johnson is a master of increasing velocity. So there, there definitely is a chance that, part of the fastball velocity and, and man has that jumped up a lot. We're talking about a mile and a half per hour, I believe over, over last season. And he's hitting some 95s on the gun. I don't, you know, that, that could be a little bit of Wes Johnson, but I think a lot of this with Odorizzi is, is really just refining his mechanics and getting back to where he was before he was hurt. Uh, Martin Perez, I know going in, they looked at him, you know, Wes Johnson's a very big biomechanics guy and, and spent a lot of time, with that and, and hip uh, working on hips, players' hips and getting them in the right place. And they looked at Martin Perez and they said, look, this is a guy that's only 28 right now. Uh, he, he was once a top 20 prospect. He was a very athletic guy. And they figured that he could handle some of the kind of significant changes with his hip direction that they wanted to do. And they asked a lot of him in the off season, he came in prepared and, and they knew that they were going to be able to increase his velocity and and it's gone up. I mean, you know, the last couple starts it's been down a little bit more. It hasn't been the ninety fives, ninety sevens, it's been ninety four, ninety five. But, you know, when you're talking about a guy that for the most part of his career sat at ninety two, ninety three, I think they had a pretty good idea that they could throw that in and, and then work with this pitch mix and you know, he created the cutter himself. He and Jake Odorizzi put that together in the bullpen in spring training. But you pair those two together, um, they, they figured no matter what he was going to have a good pitch mix to work off of just because adding velocity to a guy that was sort of a nibbler on the outside, the right-handers for his whole career, you know, you change it and you add some velocity, you can go to places you didn't before. So I think they expected some improvement on him. I think there's been a lot more than, than they probably expected just because the cutter came along so quickly. And is the home run thing just a product of, Hey uh, guys, change your launch angle. Right. There is some launch angle for sure. You look around and, and everybody is doing it. Miguel Snow, I think, is up four degrees. That could be a product of health. You know, last year he was down, but but Jorge Polanco has consistently gone up. Byron Buxton is going up. And But I don't think it's just that. I mean, look, we have – this was a very talented core. Uh, the, the five homegrown guys in the lineup all were top 100 prospects within the last three years. And, and they finally have reached their level. I think there's a product – 
a byproduct of having Nelson Cruz and Jonathan Scope and CJ Crone and Marwin Gonzalez around. Those veterans have kind of made the, the clubhouse steady. There's production there. The lineup is, has been lengthened. And then you have these young guys who are finally feeling comfortable with that. And, and you see what's gone on so far. It's ridiculous. You know, going into Tuesday's game against Seattle, they, they're going to have 125 home runs. That's tied for the Twins franchise record, including the Washington Senators, before the All-Star break. And <laughs> in 1964, they did that. And, you know, in 1964, it took them 81 games. It's taken them 64 to hit 125. And it has been uh, fun to see what they've done just because it's, it's so thorough. What should we know about the Twins analytics department and how it interacts with uh, Rocco? I, I, you know, that, that seems to be uh, a seamless um, relationship. I think it helped. The Twins really had good uh, manager in, in Paul Mauder as far as analytics. I, that, that one surprised me a little bit last year when I got there and, and started covering the team that a baseball man, quote unquote baseball man, who is in his 60s, was as open to analytics as he would be. And, and I really appreciated the fact that he liked looking into him and, and was, was, could see value. You know, he always questioned things and wanted to know what this was good, if it was good for my team or not. But he, he was open to it. But, you know, when you have someone like Rocco Baldelli, who was basically born in an analytic-based organization and knows that, it, it, it's just how things can, how well it can work. I mean, he's seen the proof of it. You know, he's been there for 19 years and, and has seen how the Rays were able to succeed this way. And I think when you're even that much more open to it, it allows for it to kind of filter throughout the coaching staff more freely. And man, there's so many more R&D guys in the clubhouse this year on the road. You know, the traveling party has increased significantly because of this. And I think that, it's one of the things that's helping them because they, they definitely have increased. I mean, this used to be one of the smallest front offices in all of baseball. And, and they've added so many bodies in the last year, uh, two years to, to really build it up. And they're getting where they want to be. I think having Rocco there has helped the process a lot. Twins uh, changing in a lot of ways, but uh, consistent with defense, at least in uh, center field. But left and right, Kepler and Rosario have both been uh, pretty valuable this year. Tell us something about Kepler, Buxton, and Rosario's defense that we might not know. Well, I, I think with Kepler coming in on the ball, there there's very few right fielders, uh, very few outfielders that come in on a ball as well as him. I, I really, you know, he's, he's dynamite. He doesn't do as well going back on the ball, uh, but... Um, he has such a sense for it, and he, they just have such an athletic outfield. All three of them could play center field. All three of them have played center field. Uh, Rosario is much more the um, – he, he's a really good athlete. He has a good read on the ball, and, and yet he uh, has some flair to it. And you'll see some really interesting catches out of him from time to time, but he always gets there. And, and teams have finally learned not to run on him. You know, last year – he really stood out to me as the best player on the team because one, he was the healthiest up until the, the second half, but also, you know, he's, he's just so talented and he plays so loose and energetic and, and has a very, very accurate arm from left field. It's to the point with Buxton and him that when people run on them, if it's a, a close play, probably 250 feet or in, I'm usually saying to myself out when a play <laughs> is developing and I'm, I'm shocked when it, when it doesn't happen. The other day that happened with the, and I can't remember if it was Detroit or Cleveland, uh, but but Buxton made a throw, and it was just a little late, and it was it was almost shocking because 
it's just such a talented group across the board. Um, when, when you put their defensive grades out there, you know, it, it's going to be really strong across the board and there's, there's really no slouch in the bunch. Um, it, it's definitely a, a strong plus for them on the position player side. Hitting, pitching, and fielding, the Twins are all a plus all the way around. That's why they have one of the best records in baseball this year. Dan, thanks for filling us in on how they do it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. The neat thing about the three teams we talked to, they each have their own kind of twist on the Moneyball approach. The Twins, perhaps planned, perhaps not, have shown more power than anyone, not just this season, but baseball history. You couldn't have predicted that before the year started, and that's pretty cool. Unpredictable Moneyball, perhaps that's what it's all about. Hi, I'm Corey March of Sports Info Solutions, and I'm here to tell you about SISBets.com. SISBets.com is an advanced prop betting information tool powered by Sports Info Solutions. Now you can leverage our proven projections model to find value against the odds. You're never more than a few clicks away from knowing which pitcher may surpass his strikeout prop or whether your favorite running back projects to go over his rushing yards total. Just choose the type of bet, the player, and enter the money line to see the SIS Bets recommendation. That's SISBets.com. All right, let's move on to our segment called Instant Replay. It's where we look at projects we're working on and articles we've written. We'll also share some leaderboards and interesting stats we've found. Andrew Kind from R&D joins me now. He wrote a piece on our blog, an excellent piece on which teams are best at infield positioning. I feel like it qualified as the most interesting thing of the week for both of us. It's a really interesting article. You can check it out at sportsinfosolutionsblog.com. Let's talk about it. First of all, what did you do? So this really started when we had Joe Sheehan on the last podcast, and you guys were talking about which teams had the best defenses, and he had mentioned how teams like the Astros and the Dodgers are doing a lot to uh, put their fielders in the best positions possible, even if they're not necessarily crossing the lines that we use to determine shifts. Uh, So taking that kind of out of the context, I was really just interested in seeing which teams have their fielders in the right place at the right time. All right, so there's a lot of nitty-gritty that goes into that, a lot of uh, gory mathematical details, as some might say. Um, so what, all right, so what went into it from uh, that perspective? So we have our, uh, our char- charting operation collect all of the data points of where infielders are standing on any given uh, ground ball. So using that information, using the information of that, the batted ball, we can tell essentially what angle of the field the ball is at as well as the angle of the field that each fielder was at. And if you can imagine the field as essentially a 90 degree angle with 90 degrees from foul line to foul line, we can kind of split up the field. And then combining those two pieces of information, we can essentially subtract uh, the angle of the ball from the angle of the fielder. We can find where the closest infielder was standing. And I actually, I decided to take out the first baseman and that sort of uh, wedge of the field since the first baseman is kind of tied to the base more or less and teams are moving around their second baseman, their third baseman, and their shortstop. Uh, so I was basically just looking at those areas and then finding where the closest fielder was. And I looked specifically at uh, the percentage of these plays that had the closest infielder within three degrees of the path of the ball. So to a person that, that isn't necessarily familiar with the analytical angle of this, you are essentially saying, okay, with someone close to the ball, and here's how often this happens, you establish what's good in that, what's average in that, what's not so good in that, what surprises did you find? 
the most surprising thing for me, I think, was that the Orioles actually came out near the bottom. Uh, we've talked about them a couple times on this podcast for their uh, positioning, both in the infield and in the outfield. And they, I believe they lead the league in, in infield shifts right now. So to have them near the bottom was a little bit surprising. Uh, they've actually only saved five runs with infield shifts. So even though they've had a high volume of them, they don't have a high volume of runs saved. Uh, so maybe it's something where they maybe haven't necessarily been doing it on the right guys, or maybe they've been too far out of position, which is something that maybe this shows. But I think that was the most surprising thing for me. And just to tease it, who who is at the very top? The Giants actually came out on top. Uh, the Yankees were second. And then there were, there were teams like the Dodgers and the Astros that uh, and the Rays that also rated very well that I think I kind of expected to see near the top. Now, I think people are going to read it and they're going to have questions about your methodology and questions about uh, first base and the fact that you said that you didn't uh, include uh, first baseman. Could you make a case that they should be included and is that maybe a next iteration? Yeah, I think you can make the case for it. I think, like I, like I mentioned, it was something where just thinking of it in terms of the first baseman and the third baseman at the corners, think of how much... Uh, teams are moving that third baseman around, whereas on the other side of the infield, uh, the first baseman is really distinct. But and there's going to be variation between you know certain first basemen. I'm sure are more comfortable moving away from the base. Uh, so it's it's definitely something that that we could incorporate. And I don't even think it it would change the results that much. It was just something that I, I felt we could could strip out. What's next on the positioning frontier? These are this is something that certainly could be developed pretty well. Yeah, I think for me, I think it'd be interesting to do it in the outfield too, so that you had a perspective of an entire team's defense. That's something that is a little bit harder for us, just given that we actually only chart these infielder positions since we're doing it all based off of uh, video feeds and, and we don't necessarily see the outfielders positioning on every play. Um, so we can really only do it uh, for the infield with our stuff. We can incorporate stack has to do it and, and get a better picture. But I think that the outfield would be something that, that I'd like to look into as well. Now you wrote the article. I've, I've written a variety of articles on defense you have as well. When you do something like this, does it change the way that you watch the game? Like immediately after you do that? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think it goes both ways where sometimes it's, I, I see something watching a game and then I want to write about it. Sometimes I write about something like this and then I start seeing it. Uh, over the weekend, there were definitely a few plays where, uh, you know, I, I would notice that a team was either really well positioned or really poorly positioned. And I think I, I still, there are still times where when, when I'm watching a game and someone hits it to a position that you think is probably going to get through and then the camera flips and you see that they have a guy right there, uh, it's, it's still a little bit of a shock, but it's, it's something that teams are definitely doing and, and moving guys around and just trying to put their fielders in the best possible spots. Your baseball instincts are completely different from they were, what they were probably about 10 years ago. Okay, so that's great. Uh, Andrew did this piece, sportsinfosolutionsblog.com. And I think our goal is if you read something like that and it changes the way that you watch the game, I think we, uh, we accomplished our mission there. A couple of other things we've written about recently. We named Cody Bellinger the May Defensive Player of the Month. You watch him, uh, it's fairly obvious why he's getting it, given the way that his throwing arm has uh, been so good. We talked about JT Real Muto last time on this podcast. We put that in writing, too. You can check out our articles on The Athletic. We rated the best infields in baseball, the top 10, and the best outfields in baseball, the top 10, coming as well. We got a listener question from Dave Raglan, Mayo Dave R on Twitter, an avid Tigers fan. His wife loves the Nats, too. He wants to know, for players who hit the ball hard but don't have success, why is that? Is it just launch angle? 
So just to, uh, I guess, explain, our hard hit rate's a little different from uh, StatCast's hard hit rate, and it's a little different from what you might see on uh, Fangraphs. We're looking at hard hit balls divided by total number of at-bats, so it punishes the hitter for strikeouts. And when you look at the best in baseball, it tends to jibe with the best hitters in baseball. You look at like the top six, Yelich is there, Bellinger's there. The one name that jumps out at you that isn't necessarily, uh, he's not necessarily performing at the same level was Yadi, uh, Yadi or Molina before he got hurt. Um, there are a number of things that go into hard hit balls. Uh, when you hit the ball hard on the ground, uh, if you're not fast, like Yadier Molina is, you might make more outs than uh, some guys. You might run into some good defenses. Uh, there are definitely a lot of factors. Uh, what's, uh, what's your take on uh, hard hit balls, launch angle, and the like? So, I mean, we can even jump back to infield positioning yep. where uh, – Teams are, are much better positioned now, and, and we're looking at the leaderboards, which we'll share in a minute, of uh, batting averages on hard hit balls. But one of the ones, one of the guys who is near the bottom right now is Matt Carpenter, and he's someone who has such a distinct batted ball profile that uh, if if he you know if he puts the ball on the ground, it's probably going to be pulled. And I was looking at um, when he hits a hard. A grounder or short liner this year into a shift he's only three for 21 so his batting average on these hard hit balls is probably going to be a little bit lower just um because of because of that and because of positioning so if this was like 1980 he'd be hitting about 40 points higher right uh and in uh i would say that the batted ball distribution matters too like dave said launch angle um someone like joey Votto, who's also near the bottom he's hitting on his hard hit balls this year he's hitting a lot more fly balls compared to last year his line drive rate was a little bit higher um so it's it's definitely part of it too yeah hard hit line drives definitely where it's at your top five leaderboard in highest batting average when recording a hard hit ball javi bias at the top he's hitting 705 that's 55 for 78 joey gallows at 673 37 for 55 and then jorge alfaro 667 Brandon Lau, 650, and then Alberto Mondesi and Yoan Moncada at 638. MLB averages in the mid fives. Yeah, in the bottom of that, you have Kendrys Morales at 333, Kevin Pillar at 344, and then three guys who are really kind of underperforming here in Matt Carpenter at 362, uh, Jose Ramirez at 384 and Joey Votto at 387. Yeah, you just mentioned Votto. And the way to the way to record high good batting average on hard hit balls, get those line drives. All right, so now we go from those numbers to our ridiculous numbers. Ridiculous numbers of the day. All right, ridiculous number of the day. We're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to do it in the form of a trivia question so that you can play along rather than us uh, reading you a stat off a script. Uh, I thought it would be cooler if we asked the question. You could either pause or you could watch uh, or listen to one of us think about it uh, as we try and uh, piece it together. So I asked Andrew to prepare a trivia question for me, and I have one for him as well. So, Mark, my trivia question for you is that there is a National League pitcher right now who's throwing his change up 39% of the time. It's our highest recorded uh, change up percentage, which we have on record. And in his last start, he threw 58 change ups on 95 pitches, which comes out to 61%, which I thought was kind of absurd. Do you know who it is? All right. So it has to be a starting pitcher. And again, pause if you want to, if you want to ponder it as I try and, parse through it and i'm thinking about teams here and i actually was just looking at a change of pitcher chris paddock but i know it's not him 
All right. I f- see, I would figure that it's a left-handed pitcher because you get a lot of left-handed change-up pitchers, but I don't think it's not Cole Hamels. It's, it is not a left-handed pitcher. It is not a left-handed pitcher. I am stuck on this. Who do you got? It is Trevor Richards of the Miami Marlins. He's at 39%. He's getting really good results with it. Opponents are only hitting 157 uh, against it, but it's something that I think is super fascinating because he's, I mean, like I said in his last start, 61% of the time uh, using his changeup. That's like Trevor Hoffman-esque. All right, so mine for you. I've alluded to it uh, earlier in the show that we track all different types of plays, and I like to combine diving, sliding, and jumping into one group. We call them telegenic plays. These are the plays that are most likely to be web gems or top plays on MLB Network. So I ask you, which two outfielders West National League, East National League, have the most telegenic plays this season? In other words, slides, dives, and jumps that resulted in catches. Uh, So the first one that just jumps out to me, I would guess Kevin Pillar of the Giants. Ding! I feel like that's the easier one of the two. Yeah, I, th- I think that one is, was, he was the first one that, that I even thought of, so I'm glad that you said NL West. And then NL East outfielder, I would say, hmm, is it someone that I should know? I think so. Ender Inciarte. Ender Inciarte in a normal year would be a, a pretty good guess, but it's not him. All right, so... 13 times this season, Kevin Pillar and this player have made a jumping, diving, or sliding catch. And this guy took a lot of grief last year for not necessarily going all out on fly balls. Uh, This year, he seems to be doing more of that in the field. His defensive runs saved are considerably better. The answer with Kevin Pillar is Bryce Harper. And with that, we wrap up the sixth episode of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcasts. For our guests, Susan Slusser, Mark Topkin, and Dan Hayes, our co-host, Andrew Kine, and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you down the road. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS. 